Hi, everyone. Today is Monday, the 28th of September, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the Monday Morning Analyst. Thank you so much for joining me. Please follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas, or you can email me luke.thomas at sbnation.com. Just two events today on the podcast. Bellator 143 was on Friday night. We won't talk holiday about that at all. But then there were, of course, on Saturday night, UFC Fight Night 75 or UFC Japan or UFC Fight Night uh, Barnett versus Nelson, depending on how you want to describe it. We'll break down some of the action from both of those events. The podcast has three parts. Part one, the big overview. Part two, um, where we'll review technical action. And then part three, just the look ahead. Uh, okay, so part one. And by the way, we try to do this in 30 minutes or less. Part one usually has five minutes on the clock or less. Let's go. I'm actually under a real time crunch this time anyway. So the big overview. Uh, I'm going to start with the big overview and then lead into an event doing it, the podcast a little bit backwards today. Here's why. Again, I'm not going to make a sweeping claim here because I don't think that'd be the right call. But if you watched Bellator 143 on Saturday night, excuse me, Friday night, on Spike TV, you saw in the opening bout on the main card, uh, and by the way, the prelim card had some nice stuff on there um, with Darian Caldwell and Sean Bunch and a few other things as well. But um, the opening fight on the main card was Everton Teixeira, famous K1 kickboxer, Kyokushin Karate guy, um, and uh, a, a UFC cast-off, Vinicius Queiroz, who had obviously competed for Bellator previously to this, but had fought also in the UFC for a bit as well. And it was, a, it was, it was unbelievable because... Teixeira gets submitted in a way that is hard to comprehend, to, to be perfectly honest. Hard to comprehend. And I'll explain how he got submitted um, in just a second when we break down the technical action. But I think the point I wanted to make was, like, I really am beginning to wonder about how much more we'll get this athlete I'm done in this one related combat sport. I'm going to now transfer over to MMA. Sorry, Paradigm, my nose hurts so bad. Um, I really don't know how much longer that's going to be the case. I don't think that will ever go away because I do think you'll get guys who wrestle at the collegiate level and will be able to, to transition skills, you know, very easily to MMA or, you know, relatively quickly. And they'll be better than, you know, some of the athletes who come through MMA who, you know, weren't recruited to play a, a sport at a higher level. So I don't think that the phenomenon will ever go away, but I just feel like we have this creep going on where it's becoming less and less realistic to expect anything out of these guys. And it's just sort of like important to note that Gary Tonin, who uh, is a grappling phenomenon, has announced this past weekend that he's going to be going into mixed martial arts, which, of course, is very exciting. He's very athletic. Um, he says that he wants to go down to the 145 level. I took a, as you, If you watch this podcast, you'll note that I took a Gary Tonin seminar uh, a couple of months ago. I mean, yeah, roughly two months ago. And I think that based on my observations of his size, I think 145 would be good for him. 155, those guys can get really big. So I think that's a good call. So he seems to be doing a lot of the right things. He's still young, I think 22. I don't think he's gone so far down the rabbit hole in terms of his habits and whatnot that making the transition over would be too difficult. Started in wrestling, as a matter of fact, not at a very high level, but certainly made it a part of his game. But, you know, I also wonder, like, part of what makes him such a special guy in jiu-jitsu is he takes a lot of risks, will fall underneath, will let people get deep half guard on him, um, will roll to his back and, and and just do a lot of things that are very unorthodox and, and, you know, not very recommended 
how is that going to transition over at this point? You know, when you've developed this 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 persona and this style of competing that is totally or at least almost entirely not applicable to MMA. Um, I wonder. I'm not. I, I I don't make that to be um, a claim that he won't do well. I just think if you're looking at the good parts and the bad parts, there's going to be a lot of good parts. There's going to be some parts you're going to have some questions about, and those things might be it. But I guess just after watching what happened to Teixeira, you could say, well, that's just that fight. That's just Teixeira. And to some extent, I think that's correct. But I also think it's correct to say, well, wait a second. Are we really seeing a lot of successful matriculation from other sports? Or a lot of guys saying, you know what, there was a moment in time where you could you could make the leap. It was easier pickings. It was the Wild West. You had you had time to get good at those things. Now you don't have a lot as, uh, as much time. And to succeed in one combat sport and then find the time to go to another one, you know, guys like Daniel Cormier have been able to do that. But I think generally speaking, it's very, very difficult. Or like Ronda Rousey, who just basically abandoned another Olympic cycle in favor of just not doing judo anymore and then found MMA you know, relatively by accident. So um, you will always find those kinds of things. I don't think, again, it's never going to go away. But this free-for-all or, you know, how's Bouchesha going to do in MMA and how's this guy going to do, I'm a lot less optimistic than I used to. And, again, it's just that to share a fight and it's just what he did. But to some extent, I do think it's emblematic of a change in what's really realistically possible for guys coming into MMA at this point in time. If you don't really start doing MMA – at least on some level, relatively early into your expert training, um, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to have diminished returns. All right. With that out of the way, how much time did I save? 11 seconds. Not bad. All right. So let's put 25 minutes on the clock and let's do part two. Here we go. Part two of the podcast is the review of technical action. Now, because I mentioned what I did in the first segment, let's go to Bellator 143 first. Now, I normally don't do this. I would start with UFC and finish with Bellator. Here's the good news. I'm just going to talk about that one fight. There were some other interesting moments on the card. I mentioned Sean Bunch was on his back, r- turtled, and then didn't keep moving and got his back taken. That's sort of one thing I noticed. I'm really curious about another guy, Sean Bunch. Can he really make the technical developments necessary? I'm not so sure. Fighting another guy like Darian Caldwell, who could, but again, I'm just a lot less confident than I used to be about this ability to switch. So so there was some nice stuff there. Joe Warren, and I'll go through the results here in just a second. Joe Warren showing some nice wrestling ability uh, in the main event. But here are the results. Uh, Very, very, very quickly. This took place at uh, the State Farm Arena in Hidalgo, Texas. As I mentioned before, Darian Caldwell subbing Sean Bunch on the prelim card at 235 of the first round via rear naked choke. Uh, and there was a couple of things as well. All right. Uh, so Joe Warren defeated L.C. Davis 30-27 across the board. Just really, his, his, his entries into takedowns are great. Once he gets into you, he just drives the shoulder far. He's able to get his hands there. Um, he just puts a lot of pressure on you in ways where he's not as reckless as he used to be. He's not as wild as he used to be. And his Finishes against the fence are as good as they've ever been. Uh, Kendall Grove defeated Joey Beltran at 227 of the third round. Grove sticking behind a jab for big portions of the fight, I think frustrating Beltran. And I don't think Beltran's chin is quite what it used to be. He developed a style of striking that accommodated his ability to take punishment when you go back and reference the Pat Berry fight. Um, he's paying for it. He's paying for it now, unfortunately. A nice guy. It seems like he just now is finding the right weight class at middleweight. He looked nice and trim. 
but uh, I'm wondering if he's taking too much damage at this point. Emmanuel Sanchez, out of the Rufus Sport Camp, defeated Henry Corrales via split, deci- excuse me, split decision, 30-27, 27-30, and then 29-28. To me, you know, if you want to go 29-28 in favor of Sanchez, that's fine. But to give all three rounds to Corrales is you know, some idiot who's judging that, clearly. Uh, and he looked good. He's still, I think, a work in progress, Sanchez, but he had... You know, he had just a much more dynamic game. Uh, Corrales only really able to attack in blitzes, and I think someone like Sanchez who can pick his spots, can blitz if he needs to, can pop and move if he needs to, can change the dynamism of a game much more easily. Um, it was just going to be his fight to lose. So then we move to the fight that I referenced in part one. Vinicius Queiroz defeated uh, Everton Teixeira at four minutes of the second round via arm triangle. Okay, so one of my favorite submissions ever in mixed martial arts is Rick Story's head and arm triangle of Brian Foster. And the reason why is because he did it from within Foster's guard, right? So Foster had full guard around around Rick Story, and Rick Story still managed to finish it off. The only way to really do that is if the other person is injured, is if they panic, you know, and I don't think that was the case in this bout, although it was a rough bout before that, but, you know, not unusually rough by UFC standards. You just have to be incredibly strong. You have to have a sick, sick squeeze to do that to someone. And that doesn't necessarily mean tall. That doesn't necessarily mean big, although those things help. You just need to be strong as an ox. And I've always respected the fact from that fight that, that Rick Story is strong as hell. So when you finish a one of these chokes, there's lots of ways to finish it. What they normally teach you, the, the, the initial way that I learned, was that you want to start from, you can start on uh, from mount, right? So if, let's say you're punching from mount, or you're just pressing on their face, and you get someone to like try and try and shrimp you off, right, by putting your hands in your hips, then you want to, you know, push up one of the arms, drive it by your head, and then you want to lock up the gable grip, the hand that's underneath their head, palm to the mat, right? And then you gable grip on top, okay? Go underneath, I should say. And that's how you do it. And then what you do is you want to slide off. You don't want to be loose. You want to be, you know, you're, you want your forehead on the mat, ear to ear. You want to be down. And that, if you, if possible, you want to create an angle. So it's all nice and tight. And if just to finish it, you want to walk out. Lots of different varieties to do that. There's one where you can put your knee out to stop their hip from moving in. There's one where if they don't move, you can just keep sliding out. There's one where you can do it and put your knee on top of their hip. Um, there's one where instead of just cutting an angle where you bring your, <clears throat> you're still, you're still here, you're still over, but you kind of rotate your chest on top of the back of their arm and everything squeezes that way. That's a newer way that I've learned a little bit harder to pull off, takes a little bit more practice, but is extremely effective. So there's lots of different varieties to do that, but they all have one commonality in, in them is that whatever side the choke is on. So if I'm here, the body is to my right. I'm on the I'm on the other side of their body. Remember, I'm I'm rotating away from their body. Okay, and the reason why the Brian Foster submission by Rick Story is kind of impressive is because he never had a chance to create any angle. All he could do was just squeeze the hell out of it. And again, that's very very difficult to do. Plus, when you're in someone's guard, they can do all kinds of stuff. They can butterfly hook you and lift you up to you know to lessen the pressure. There's there's just a lot of stuff they can do, right? Uh. Now, Brian Foster didn't do it in this particular case, but you get the idea. Also, just you don't have a lot of the, you don't have the right angle, you know. Um, here's what Keraz did. Keraz had it from half guard, okay, but not same side half guard, other side half guard. 
In other words, think of it this way. The perfect way to do the choke is if I'm off to the side of them. Let's say I was in mount. I lock up the choke. I hop off of mount. I'm now off to the side of them. Let's call that perfect scenario. Let's call second best scenario mount. Let's call third best scenario half guard, same side. Let's call fourth best scenario inside the guard. Let's call fifth best scenario on the other side half guard. That's where Karaz was. He wasn't half guard, same side. He was half guard, other side. What? How do you get submitted there? That was shocking. Shocking. That is, I, I don't know what you call that. It's not Karaz's fault. If you felt the guy gurgling, finish where you finish. But to tap? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And maybe Karaz has an incredible squeeze. I'm sure that he does. But if someone is doing that to you, think about where they are. They're across your body, right? They're across your body, and their hands are locked up. So what does that mean you can do? That means you can just bridge to the side where there's no legs. So two things are going to happen there. One, either they're going to try and hold the, the choke, and they're going to roll over, at which point you can then elevate to create space, right? Or they're going to let go to post a hand. Either way, you're going to be in a better spot. You just give up. It was unbelievable. It was totally and completely unbelievable. I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, look, we all know heavyweight MMA is not all that great generally, and we certainly know that uh, the heavyweight division in UFC is better than the one in Bellator, but that was just... Everton Deshera is a beast on the feet, but this is what I'm talking about. I've never seen someone tap to all the way across to the other side of the body to choke to the opposite side of the head. You, you might see it from half guard on the same side. Never past guard to the other side half guard wow anyway the fighter of the card in this particular case i'll give it to uh, darian caldwell even though he backflipped into a camera woman and uh i'll give the card a uh you know five out of ten or something all right which takes us to ufc fight night 75 barnett versus nelson this took place at the Saitama Super Arena in Saitama, Japan, not Tokyo, Saitama. Attendance was reported at 10,137. Don't know about any numbers for the live gate. Uh, main event, Josh Barnett taking on Roy Nelson. Josh Barnett wins 48-47, 48-47, and 50-45. to Not sure how I feel about that 50-45. to Would have given the first round to Nelson for sure. So let's go through some of the technical action here, and I probably won't even get into the preliminary card. There was some decent stuff. Um, Nakamura submitting uh, Zhang Lang and then the guy just collapsing face first. That was nice. Um, Zapata losing in the third round like he did, but I'm not really interested in, in it's, it's fairly low level stuff down there. Not as low as that Bellator one, but I'm breaking down the Bellator one because I was, I was shocked by it. I was shocked. All right. So let's break down some of this stuff from the, from the first card. Let's see. Um, okay. This was kind of interesting to me about uh, Barnett and Nelson. As the fight went one on by the fifth round, there wasn't a whole lot that was particularly new or interesting. Even in the fourth round, a couple of takedown attempts by Nelson. But um, early on, there was some decent stuff that had happened, I thought. And I thought both guys looked good. A couple things to note. I thought Nelson's wrestling was kind of interesting. Not great, but functional enough. And I'm, that, that might be all that matters. And then two, and I'm going to keep going back to this, the stance of Barnett threw me off. I, I thought, that sounds like crazy. Barnett is an orthodox fighter, and he did stand orthodox in very, very close range, just shy of clinch range. But when he was outside, he stood southpaw, which is interesting because that creates a home 
for the right hand, which is the power weapon of Nelson, as well as Nelson's kicks, a couple of which landed. Same with the punches. I'm trying to figure out why he did that. I would love to talk to him about it. I got a couple of theories. I think one is that he was able to get a tight defense and watch it coming the whole time. Maybe he felt like he had better counters off of it, right? If you could watch it coming, it's only the real weapon he had to worry about. Once he got it past him, he was able to go and do things. Uh, one or, or maybe another opportunity or another way to look at it is it giving him a bunch of different looks to look at. But it was just, it wasn't like he was going back and forth a lot. It was when there were certain positions, whoop, he went southpaw on him and stayed in southpaw for long periods of time. Um, I would love to be able to talk to Josh about that and exactly know what he saw because, um, you know, when someone does that as a southpaw, I can tell you that opens up my left hand quite nicely because I can just step out and bang. Um, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of weird. And for them, they can do the same thing. They can step out with their right and bang. So it's interesting. But in the first round, uh, Great thing from Roy Nelson. What does he do? Locks up a single, drives the shoulder to one side to run the pipe, and as the guy tries to go the other way, so what happens, right? If I'm trying to if I'm trying to lean my shoulder into you and drive you one way, what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to go the other way to create a balance, right? And as I do that, he goes for the dump. As he goes for the dump, Barnett tries to post a hand and recover, keeps one leg on the ha- uh, uh, one hand in the leg, one hand cross face, and then rolls him back flat. Very nice job. So think about it this way. You're turning one way and then changing angles to the other way. Nice little job he did there by Roy Nelson. Clearly had practiced that. Did a very good job. Um, and then, of course, by the end of the first round, Nelson got behind Barnett in the clinch, put his left leg behind the right leg of Barnett, and then sort of did like what you do for an inside trip. You just sort of turn your hips as you drop and you push him. And of course he fell over. So, so that was a nice job by Nelson. And again, this is where you start to see Barnett standing Southpaw in front of Nelson at distance. When they were striking at distance, it was a Southpaw. And again, it's not clear why, because there was a couple times he got lit up a little bit, not, not too badly, you know, again, he won the fight. And I think he should have won the fight. They fought a great fight. But most of the best work he did was not at that range. A little bit of the work he did was at that range. The other thing I was thinking about maybe was, why did he stay in southpaw? Well, if you're standing southpaw, your right hand's extended forward, right? Maybe that's the hand he wanted to use to grab the clinch. Um, maybe because he felt like he could parry there and then create counters for a one-two-one. I- I'm not really entirely sure. Um, again, that's why I want to mention it. But there was, it was really interesting to notice because this is where it happened. So here's what he does. He eats a shot, right, Barnett then throws a one, two. When he lands the left, then he switches back to orthodox and then fires the left and then the right. So maybe he was waiting for that to go one, two, switch one, two. Yeah. I, I, I'm really not entirely sure, but he does that as well. It does a good job. Then when he gets locked in the clinch with him, this is what I really appreciate from Barnett. Barnett did an excellent job, man. Barnett is in there. He's got firm wrist control on the right hand, but it's a lot more than just that. Like, look at his feet moving the whole time in the clinch. A lot of times people look at the clinch, and this is why I don't think people shoot MMA correctly. They shoot a lot of MMA from, like, the knees up or maybe the waist up or something like that. You know, I talked about it with the Dominic Cruz and TJ Dillashaw fight that's going to happen. you got to be able to see their feet. It's, like, this, the key to everything. People who are good in the clinch, they move their feet a lot, right, even if it's against the fence. They still move their feet a lot. So what did you see? What did you see Barnett doing? You see him grabbing the wrist control, and if he lost it, he would shift to the right to stay out of the way, and he would drive his shoulder to the inside, and he would have his head in the inside. Then he would switch back to the other side, and he would get an underhook, and he would drive his head to the inside, and he would drive his shoulder. Then he would go back to the right side, and a couple times he did this. A couple times he would grab the left hand on the left wrist of Nelson and then go underneath the arm for a two-on-one Russian. 
What does that do to the right hand? Number one, I'm already across your body, so it's hard to punch like this, like across your body. And second of all, it's going to make you want to use your right hand to grab mine, which means that I can go and then grab your hand again. So, like, Josh Barnett just doing an amazing, amazing job in that clinch. Like, I don't think he ever used the two-on-one. You know, usually when you get two-on-one, you want to have it straight across your body. You want to have it, like, bending out like an arm bar. You want to be putting weight down on it. You want to be getting to go one way and turn them and move them and turn them, you know? And uh, he never did that with it, but just had a lot of different tricks just to keep Nelson moving. You know, if someone's driving your head into you, you feel like you're going up straight. Oh, my God, if I feel like I'm going up straight, someone can drop down and go for a takedown. So he was, you know, drive back in. And this just wore on him. And it didn't create the most exciting fight by the fifth round. But, you know, just a great, great job by Bar Barnett um, when you think about it that way. And then, of course, there's a couple other things, too. You know, like um, uh, by round four, uh, I felt like he was doing a lot of he would get to the inside and he would go lead uppercut, left hook, inside elbow, right elbow, lead to the body, left elbow, like just just mixing it all. And then what would he do? Take a step out, turn, lead uppercut. And he used that lead uppercut with the right hand a couple times to the outside. You know, not just in the inside space when he's working around the clinch, but on the outside too. He had that lead uppercut, used to pop the head up, and then drive the left home. Again, I'm not sure why he would want to do that on the other side, but but he could effectively strike on the outside. I don't know if that was his best idea, being southpaw, uh, for that purpose. But he, he is not out, you know, he is not outgunned there in a huge degree either. Uh, and the round, the fourth round, Nelson had a decent single, but Barnett, I think, had either double overhooks or at least one underhook, and then the right side in overhook. And when he gets taken down, what does he do? Like so, so what happens? Shoulder planted in running the pipe for a single, Barnett goes down, keeps weight on Nelson while driving weight the opposite side. So I'm going to pull weight down, and I'm going to push weight over with a butterfly hook. Whoop, got back to his feet. That was very nice as well. Um, let's see. And then there was one more single, I think, but Barnett rolled through and then tried to lock up a, a leg lock, and he didn't. But if you, you've seen it, you saw it with um, – you saw it with Matt Brown and Johnny Hendricks. If you can lock up a leg lock, even as a threat, they have to back out. That gives you space to then get up. So you saw that as well. So so a, a fun fight, an interesting fight. The only mystery to me, again, and there's a lot of different ways you can look at it for what went right. I just want to hear what Josh has to say about it, why he went southpaw at distance. I'd be very, very curious to know about what it was about the right side of his body. Was you looking for, were you looking for counters? Were you looking to reach for the clinch with your dominant hand? Or did you feel like you could box with him there and give him different looks? What, what exactly was it? Uh, okay, so let's talk about Musasi Hall here if we can. How much time do I have left? I don't think much. God dang this phone. Yeah, not much. Okay, let me quickly get to Musasi Hall because this is the one everyone cares about. First round, off of a parry on the legs, right? So here comes a kick, outside parry, tries to smack it away, uses it to then reach up under the thigh, and he gets what's called a treetop. Uh, Rich Crunkleton in WC was the king of these, man. Treetop is exactly what it sounds like. You, when you finish a single leg, you pull it up, and then you, you can get a hand. You can get two hands underneath. You can get one hand on the ankle, depending on how you've been taught. I've been taught, like, one guy told me that the other guy was wrong. But a lot of times you want to lift the leg up, you can kick the post leg out. You can grab one ankle and then behind the hip and then rotate and kick the post leg out. You can put it on top of your leg and then kick the, up your shoulder and then kick the post leg out. You can put it on top of your shoulder and then run them back. You can do all and block them. You can do all kinds of things. You can put it on top. You can have a single. Then you can grab the opposite one and then drive your weight forward. There's just a lot of different opportunities there. Well, he had a treetop uh, or maybe 
for a second, I'm not exactly sure what Hall was trying to do. Maybe like a flying arm bar or some kind of a clinch. But in any case, hold on just one second here. Okay, so first round, he gets the parry, grabs it, treetops him, drives him down. Um, but Musasi does a good thing here. So what, is, what does Hall do? Hall tries to roll backwards. Musasi follows him, cradles him, left hand over the neck, right hand behind the leg, gets on the balls of his feet, drives into him while lifting the same leg he initially had the first um, grab for the single leg, right? Sort of like he gets a cradle and then dumps him to his back with the right hand in the left. So that was nice, you know, keeping him flat on his back the whole time. So how did he pass? Quite quite simply, really. Um, you, you always want to be in your on your side when you're in half guard, right? When someone plays knee shield. But you don't want to be so flat that the outside of your leg is pinned to the ground. That's a problem. If they, if they can do that. They can create passing lanes through you, side you, to one side, or around the other side. Your, your, your hips need to be mobile and moving. If you're pinned to one side... That's a problem. I mean, it's better than being completely flat on your back, but it, it's not It's not a good place. So what does he do? He pins it. He pins it with his left shin. His left shin pins the inside of the right leg of, of Hall to the ground. Then he just uh, does something quite nicely. Shoulder pressure on top, leans into him to control his neck, to control his back, crosses his own feet behind him, and then just steps out and slides over. Easy. No problem. But if you don't control the top of them there, and you try to cross your feet behind you, they can sit up, they can push, they can buck, they can roll. The, what makes that work is not that, yes, you're holding their leg in place and you're replacing it with another one and then stepping out. That's true. You are doing that. But you have to control the spine. The spine's got two parts, neck, head, and then the hips. And this is sort of connected, right? Because you're going to get a cross face here. You're going to get a choke here. Connect those two and pass. That's what he does. Um. So there's a, there was one thing that, that Hall did nicely. Musasi tries to mount, but we've talked about this before. We, 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 I've mentioned on the show a thousand times, right? What does Musasi try to do? Hall has his right arm pinned to his side here. It's all pinned. Musasi's kind of like around here, and he tries to step over like a horse. Usually when you mount, you want to slide like you're going for knee on belly, and then when you get across, you just sort of drop your, 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 your foot out, and you can go for grapevine or whatever you also want to do from there. The, the attacks change at that point you got to get this elbow open. He doesn't do that. And why do you have to get this elbow open? Remember, here, in tight, where, what are you here? Strong. Here, outside, you're weak. You're super weak out here. So, And inside space means you can control parts of their body, too. You're not, you don't just lose strength, but you lose the coordination and the control over it. So, so Hall does a good job, keeps his elbow pinned. Musashi tries to pass across. And as he does it, he times the forearm and then bucks and then lifts him over with the, with the forearm out, okay? But you, it, you, you, if you want to control someone from half guard, or excuse me, from side control, you got to get this elbow open. You got to get it open. If you don't get this open or you get it partially open or you have them totally closed, you have not passed their guard. You just haven't. You, you, again, not against anybody good. So that, that, that's one thing to know. So he did a good job there, timed it, and then got back to full guard. There was one moment like a scramble where Hall was playing with a foot. I don't know what he was doing. You can't. There's there's no leg lock without controlling their leg. This doesn't exist. Okay, not against anyone good. Um, there was one nice thing that Hall does with the Kimura, and I don't know how I'm going to explain this, but I'll do my best. So what happens? Musasi passes, passes to Hall's on his left side. Musasi comes around. What does what does Hall do? Kimura drives it behind him. Now 
You can do that. You can do that, but you got to do something about it. Lock up the Kimura there. Someone's going to step around and go for an armbar on you, which you see Musasi try to do. Someone has this on you. You just come around the other side. You can armbar them, okay? Or you can, they can Kimura you. You got to be very, very careful about that. All right? Matt Hughes did it to GSP, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, in their first fight. But there is one counter you can do to that because Musasi commits to it, but not fully. So what can you do? You actually want to let someone pass your guard if you're going to do this with the Kimura. You have to. It doesn't work without it. It's like a bait. You, you, you lock up the Kimura, and then you bait them to go outside. If you lock, I like to lock it up on this side, right? This is what I do, okay? But it can work either side. I've got the Kimura, but they've passed my guard. I've let them pass my guard, thinking, oh, well, I'm, they're, they're going to step around the head on the outside for the arm bar, but they're not. Because here's what I'm going to do. If I have, let me see if I can see myself here. If I have it here, okay, their body is here. I'm actually going to roll. I'm going to I'm going to drop my legs out, okay, and I'm going to roll all the way around the other side. It's hard to describe, but if I'm here, I'm not going to try and fight you here. I'm going to drop and I'm going to roll, not across. Yeah, as a matter of fact, not a Granby roll. You're going to roll across your back. And why? What does that? What does that do? What you end up doing is, if you're if you're fast enough and you're quick enough, you take your wrists. The first thing you do is you don't just keep the kimura normally. You close your wrists. You ever do like forearm curls behind your back like this? You can do the forearm curls behind your back because that's what you're 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 trying to get this stronger. So so you you do this here. This is a normal kimura. I'm gonna squeeze that joker right here. Squeeze and I'm gonna squeeze. So now I've got you. Now I'm going to whip across my back to the other side. And what that does is it helps me take your back. I essentially, because remember, if you're Uriah Hall and you're here, what am I going to do? I'm going to roll around the outside to your back. I'm going to use your arm as a post in the ground. Imagine it's a pole in the ground and you're a stripper and you're going to roll across your back to your side all the way to the other side. And if you don't move because you're quick enough with the roll, you will take their back. Keenan Cornelius uh, showed the, this one the first time I ever saw it. Um, and it works. You got to be quick about it. It's a little bit harder to do in the gi because the friction and stuff, you know. But no gi, it works great, man. And if you time it right, as soon as they pass, go. You can do it. You can take their back. And he does it. And he does it. Now, of course, Musashi reads it, but then he was able to get an arm bar or at least an arm bar attempt. And why does it work? Because here's one thing. Once you get the back, they'll have a Kimura – They'll be on your back, and they'll have a Kimura on your arm still. What happens if you're the guy who has your back taken and someone has a Kimura on your arm backwards? Number one, they could put a leg over your head and finish the arm bar. Number two, what else can they do? They can prevent you from rolling. Because what happens is not only do they get your back, you can't, if they do it correctly, you can't get your elbow to the ground. Think about that for a second. Try and stand up to your right without your elbow on the ground. You may say, well, I'll just sit up. But you're not going to sit up because I'm on your back. You actually need to put this down so you can go. And what they'll prevent you from doing is turning. You'll just, I mean, you can do this. You can nudge left and right. But they'll actually lift your arm in the air so that they can then wrap a, you know, the leg will come over here and then they'll, and they'll arm bar you and, and that'll be that. So, like, so that's what you wind up getting, man. You got to be really careful about it. Um, it's hard to do. It's hard to explain. 
I'll post a video in the comments when I post this on MMA Fighting so you guys can see it. But it's a technique that works, man. you got to be quick about it, but it's a technique that works. Uh, it's just a little bit hard to pull off. Again, you imagine their arm being a post on the ground that you whip around, and when you whip around it, you can take the back, and then that other arm is just locked out here. It's just, it's just locked. It's locked so that I can't get my elbow to the ground. And then, of course, they can whip the leg around the side. Crazy, right? Uh, okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about the quickly the uh, – I'm running out of time here. Let's quickly talk about the spinning back kick in, in round two. The spinning back kick is really interesting because Hall said what he was seeing was he was seeing, you know, um, Musasi flinch every time he threw it or, you know, made any attempt at a, at a, at a strike. And so he timed it perfectly on – Musashi's face. That may very well be true. I'm not here to tell you it's not. But there was a debate about, you know, how fluky was it. Um, I don't think it's that fluky. If you ask me who would I pick in a rematch, I would probably still pick Musashi without much hesitation. But I try to describe it to people, and this may sound redundant or stupid or not interesting, but the way I classify it is Hall outfought Musashi in that fight. That doesn't necess- necessarily mean he's a better fighter. In basketball, teams outplay other teams, not necessarily when they're better. Sometimes, but not always. And that's, to me, how I feel about it. It may be true that Hall is better than I'm giving him credit for, in which case I could be wrong no matter what. But if you're having some issues about it, uh, I mean, look, if you look at the ground game, Hall's got some real bad weaknesses, man. You know, those don't go away because he just beat a guy. Like, they're still there, you know, and someone else can exploit him. You know, you don't think Jacare could exploit him? <laughs> Jacare's going to exploit him, you know. So, so that doesn't change. But for me, the spinning back kick is interesting because he does it perfectly. Like, what is so great about a spinning back kick? You can, the way I was taught, the way is, and this is not something that I'm ever any good at, but, uh, you know, you can step across your body if you need to. But the genius of the spinning back kick is that you don't have to have a lot of windup. You can just go. And you actually don't want to jump very high, right? What you want to do is you want to have the maximum amount of twist. If you have to jump high, that means you have to crouch. That means you have to go really high. If you crouch, you telegraph. The whole key is you get just a little bit off the air. And the truth is, to me, and this is why it's not so fluky, it does, to me, I'm not sure it even matters that he didn't. If he did aim for the head and he was timing it, then it's brilliant. But even if he wasn't, even if he was aiming for the chest and the solar plexus or the stomach or the ribs, you're supposed to. Well, why? This is a much bigger target. Uh, on everyone except George Roop, it's a bigger target. Right, it's easier to, to aim center of mass here, center of mass here, and hit what you want to hit. It's hard to do that if you're just aiming for the head, and you have to get higher. So for me, it, it, like I don't know if he was aiming for the head. If he was, it's brilliant. And even if he wasn't, he was going to land that thing. And it, it's nice because you can do the spinning, back, the jumping, spinning back kick on all kinds of scenarios. Not least of which is when they're least expecting it and when they're driving forward with strikes. Now, he wasn't punching his way in, but he was he, he was encroaching on him. He wanted to get the takedown. Like, to me, it was brilliantly timed. You know, I don't know how I buy the whole argument where he threw it and it landed, and therefore it's not fluky. You know, the question is, would he, how often would he be able to do that against the same guy? You know, I don't know how often. But um, in this particular instance, the use of it was correct. Um, the timing of it was excellent. And even if it didn't land where, you know, oh, well, he, he hit the head and he says he did, but you know, I don't really believe that. Okay, let's say that's all a lie. Even if it was the chest or the sternum or the ribs, that's still a devastating kick. And that's where you're supposed to throw it anyway because it it's a low-percentage shot. It's a low-percentage shot. It's hard to hit. 
Um, and he made it work. And he made it work. So, like, to me, phenomenal. Best spinning back kick finish since Loazzo over Chainsaw Charles McCarthy, if you ask me. Just, just amazing. Um, and everything was right about it, you know? Didn't – didn't because if you, if you twist too fast, it becomes like a spinning hook or a spinning heel, like the kind he did. No, that wasn't jumping, but you know what I mean? You get that whip motion. What you want is just to have the back, and then your foot comes underneath, and you just drive it out as you finish the turn or before you finish the turn. And he did all that. It went straight back, chambered out, and then landed to the side, you know, and uh, um, just brilliant, just brilliant, totally brilliant job by him. So let's quickly go through some of this other stuff. I'm not going to go through a whole lot. And that, by the way, that stoppage was 20 seconds, I believe, uh, into the first round. So, excuse me, second round. What am I saying? Hold the results here. Uh, yeah, 25 seconds in a round two. Then Kyoji Horiguchi defeated Chico Camus, uh, 30-27 across the board. I had written notes about this, but I'm running out of time. Long story short about this, uh, this to me was the most mature performance I'd ever seen from Kyoji Horiguchi. Just a lot of different looks. Uh, loved the left-hand blitzes. A lot of times he would blitz left, throw right, duck right, throw left, and then roll left. Uh, incredible job on the striking department from Kyoji Horiguchi. Um, thoughtful. Uh, only threw knees when he was when he would push a guy back and push a guy back, and then they would get frustrated and they would charge, and then he would crack him with a flying knee. That was amazing how he did that. Um, you know, got a little bit robotic with some of the hand selections. I think towards the end, but for me, this was a guy that I think Kenny Florian noted it. This the volume was better, and not just the volume, but the volume and diversity, and really more than that, it wasn't just that he was throwing volume and diversity. It was effective. A lot of it was effective, not as effective as some other things. You know, it was not the Roy Nelson right hand, but Pretty damn effective. Chico Camus was touched up by that fight. So um, just just a lot I liked from it. A lot I liked from it. You know, and then and then tying things together like a failed takedown attempt. He would go for a fake cradle. Camus would sort of like jolt out of it and then he would throw a head kick on top. Like just just connecting a lot of different disparate pieces of offense for me that really um, that really was great. Early on in the fight kind of charging, and then he began to realize that he could time the left hand of Chico Camus. There was one moment where Chico Camus, you could, the part in round two where his coach is, 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 is you know, imploring him to drive forward, he throws a left, Chico Camus does, Horiguchi steps right and then lands his own left and then backs out. Like, he just had no, no shelter, man. No shelter at all. Just really, really, really good job by uh, Kyoji Horiguchi. Not at the same level of pocket movement and shot selection and diversity in terms of that fourth and fifth gear that guys like Dominic Cruz or TJ Dillashaw have, but shades of that, you know, the first two or three steps of that he would have, you know. Really, really, really good job by, by Kyoji Horiguchi. And again, the most dominant performance I think I've seen from him maybe ever. Uh, okay, what do you really say about Diego Brandao and Katsunori Kukuno, man? Katsunori Kakuno has fallen. Oh, by the way, Takei Mizugaki defeated George Ruba in an incredibly lackluster fight, 29-28 across the board. Then you have Diego Brandao defeating Katsunori Kakuno, 28 seconds of the first round. This was a no-brainer. Katsunori Kakuno comes out with that Kyoji Yoishi hand style, wide open, you know, just facing you basically, hips forward, not so much at an angle or a side. And uh, pays for it. Diego Brandao throws a left hook to the body, overhand right. The left hook to the body lands flushed over uh, overhand right to the head, almost lands. And Diego Brandao is like, oh, okay, here we go. You're wide open. Fakes the left and then throws a right over the top that cracks him and then finishes him from there. It was very, very simple. 
But I like how Diego Brandao didn't come out looking like a bat out of hell. Just forward pressure, good shot selection, backed him up, timed it perfectly. All she wrote. Uh, and then Mizuno Hirota defeated uh, Teruto Ishihara uh, via split draw. So 29-28, 28-29, and then 29-29. Um, I don't really care how you score this fight. A lot of a lot of donkery uh, in this fight. A lot of guys sort of. Um, Hirota was really good about stepping into the pocket to throw, but then never leaving, and that's why he kept getting hit with left hands. If you go back and you watch, he would he would drive his way in, bang bang. He would either he would either he would either miss or he'd get blocked or he'd land or whatever. But he would stay there and then get cracked upside the head every time with the left. Or he would get timed coming in a little bit as well. It was only when he went to the wrestling, I think, in the third, where uh, some of that changed. So uh, Kaito Nakamura defeated, as I mentioned before, Li Jing Lang, where he had the yeah he gets a rear naked choke on his back, and then Jing Lang collapses and falls forward. That took place at two seventeen of the third round. Nick Hine defeated Yusuke Kasuya, thirty twenty seven and twenty nine twenty eight twenty nine twenty eight. Cajun Johnson defeats Noyuki Kotani. Uh, 29 28, 29 28, 30 27, and then Shinzo Anzai defeated Roger Zapata TKO injury 47 seconds of the third round. Okay, fighter of the card, I will give to Uriah Hall. Who else do you give it to on that one? And even with his deficiencies in that first round, like the grappling stuff is still real. Weidman will tear him up for that. Uh, Jacare will tear him up for that. Um, Rockhold will tear him up for that. But, but, and I think, you know, I think, um, Romero will as well. Sorry, but you know, definitely a sensational job and using his tools effectively by Uriah Hall. So I'll give it to Uriah Hall. I'll give the card a seven. You know, Fox Sports One makes these things unbearable to watch because of their length of their broadcasts unnecessarily. But some good fights and some stand-up performances. There uh, a, a, a fair amount to enjoy next week. UFC One Ninety Two Cormier versus Gustafson main card. That's the main event and the co-main event. Hendricks versus Woodley at welterweight. Bader versus Rashad Evans. That should be killer. Sean Jordan versus Ruslan Magomedov as a heavyweight fight. And then just guy taking on Juliana Pena. Look out for Pena. If she can win, you never know what kind of contender she might be for Ronda Rousey. Not too far out. Uh, Benavidez versus Utinov on Fox Sports 1. Yair Rodriguez is back against Dan Hooker. Albert Tumanov against Alan Juban. Rose Namajunas against Angela Hill. Man, Angela Hill gets tough fights. Uh, Islam Makachev is back against Adriano Martins. That should be dope. Chris Carriasso versus Sergio Pettis. Derek Lewis taking on Victor Pesta. And then Francisco Trevino taking on Sage Northcutt. An actually good card. Very good card. Uh, that'll be at uh, on pay-per-view at the Toyota Center in uh, Toyota Center in Houston, Texas. Okay. You can follow me on Twitter at SBNLukeThomas. You can email me Luke.Thomas at SBNation.com. I appreciate everyone watching. This will be on MMAfighting.com later, and I will post uh, the video of the back take from the Kimura past that when someone passes your guard. I appreciate it so much. I'll see you guys later. Until next time, enjoy the fights.